So if you step back from employee engagement, what drives that? Well, it's it's really getting the getting people into the right roles, fit to role, strengths to role, so that pe- people can use their strengths in their current role. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that is unapologetically you and then go get it. If you feel like you were meant for more and you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Okay, here's here's a question for you. If you were to prioritize what creates the happiest, most engaged, most productive people in their work, what's at the top of that list? In other words, what matters most when it comes to you doing fulfilling work? I'm going to give you a hint. It's not ping pong tables. It's not pay. It's not even a flexible work schedule, although that's actually pretty far up the list too. It turns out there's one thing that has a higher impact than all of those, and that is whether or not your strengths fit the role that you're performing at work. We found that the thing that mattered the most is people just knowing one another's strengths. So awareness is big, and then having the right kind of conversations continuously is really important. That's Jim Harder. Jim is the chief scientist of Workplace for Gallup, where he has led more than 1,000 studies of workplace effectiveness. I'm a nerd. You might already know this if you've listened to the podcast more than once. But I'm a nerd when it comes to well-being, work, psychology, especially strengths. And there aren't too many organizations in the world that have as much data and knowledge about these particular topics as Gallup. And Jim? Well, Jim is the chief keeper of all of this data. So you can only imagine how excited I was for this conversation. Jim is also the best-selling author of multiple books, including his latest, Culture Shock, which he co-authored with the chairman of Gallup, Jim Clifton. Jim and I also, Jim Harder, by the way, not Jim Clifton, and I discuss how his research has proven that matching strengths to role is the most important aspect when it comes to fulfilling work and the factors that actually directly impact work culture. Pay attention to how Jim talks about the specific ways leadership and teams can work together to create a workplace that allows people to thrive. Okay, here's Jim kicking off our conversation, sharing a little bit about where his career began. I knew a few things about myself coming out of high school. I'd had some feedback that I was good at math and that I had uh, some writing ability, had a teacher that actually told me that. And sometimes you don't even know that until someone tells you, right? So that's the importance of recognition. But I carried that with me through college and I knew I wanted something analytical and something where I could express myself in writing. And then I got to the end of my bachelor's degree in, in business and I got an internship so with a company called Selection Research Incorporated. I didn't even know the type of work they did existed. So it's it, it was a lot closer to industrial organizational psychology. And I, I always love studying people too. So I got an opportunity there and they ended up purchasing Gallup, but I ended up with a full-time job while I was doing all of my graduate work and got to meet a guy named Don Clifton, got to work with him for 17 years. He asked me if I had any interest in working in research early on in my career. And I thought I better give that a chance. And things just kind of built and I got a a lot of research to get involved in, studying the differences in people and differences in cultures across a wide range of organizations and all of that. And that led to a number of studies where we, we started learning along the way that 
a lot of these things that we assumed were different across organizations were actually pretty similar in terms of how people relate to their work and how they relate to performance and and how they maximize performance in their environments and how they do it through their own strengths. So th- those findings all kind of built over time through a lot of a lot of studies and a, a lot of iterations, a lot of partnerships. I want to ask you about that here in a minute. I am curious also, many years later, working at Gallup, what, what keeps you there? What, what causes you to continue to come back, especially with everything that you know and have found through meta-analysis, studies, et cetera? Well, on one end, I do get exposure to a lot of organizations. And I know that sometimes when people choose to take on different opportunities, they don't recognize what they have in front of them. So I've always been very cognizant of that, that we've got a culture where we build it authentically based on what we learn in our research. We often test things yeah. on our own organization first. And then the the other part of it is we do what I consider to be very inspiring work in that some of the best recognition I ever get is when a client or a individual even comes to me and says, I'm using your research to make a difference. And it's really made a difference in my organization or my life. And I get that kind of feedback. But the inspiring part to me is is seeing the work applied. And this is a, a rare organization where you can study what's going on in the populace and develop some research that helps people at an individual and organizational level and then see it get applied. And that's why I'm, I'm still here is I, I, I actually get that kind of feedback and I, I get to see the application kind of in action. So with Gallup then, do you think about yourselves as to some degree the applications of your own experiments or how, how do you how do you talk about that internally? Yeah, we we tend to test things on ourselves first. We study things in the populace and then we try to develop some protocols that that might work. And so I work with some practitioners inside of Gallup to 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 get our research applied, but we also use our strengths work. We've all the various things that we're we're thinking about deploying, including uh, or working, we've been working on a lot now, and now have a course for managers. Or and we've had courses over time. But we keep refining them, and we've we've adjusted one to the new workforce in terms of making managers equipped to to work in a hybrid world. There's always reasons to refine and to upgrade, and I think this new world of hybrid work across organizations has led us to some learnings where we've. Uh, really emphasize the importance of ongoing, meaningful conversations that need to happen on a regular basis. Let's talk about that for just a minute. First of all, I was reading through your your new book that you did with Jim Clifton mm-hmm. called Culture Shock. And it really seems like if I if I were to describe the book in one or two sentences, which will not do it justice at all. However, it, it seems like it's one part the, I think what you call the new will of the workplace and maybe Mm -hmm. two parts drawing the relationship from earnings all the way back to taking care of people in the organization. Is that, Mm -hmm. is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think you said it well. I mean, it, it is, it's a matter of recognizing where we're at and what people have learned through the pandemic and all the experiences we've had. And then thinking about how human nature actually still works and how it works in a, in a unique way given where we're at now. And so we try to draw a map of that, of how human nature plays out in an organization to produce high levels of customer retention, customer engagement, which is ultimately what leads to, in in for-profit businesses, higher levels of revenue and profit. In not-for-profit, it still leads to the positive outcomes that that they're looking for as well. Most people are, are 
have a balance sheet, whether it's members or whoever the constituency is, we've got to aim at that. So I think one of the things that is done really well in the in the book is drawing that linear, let's call it a linear relationship for nonlinear, nonlinear things. And uh, starting with, starting all the way back with earnings and earnings per share, like we had just mentioned, but then you get to a point where you're talking about, well, what impacts customer retention, what impacts customers? And then we say, okay, well, it is, and, and I'd love to have you explain a little bit from there, how we pick up and how we get from earnings all the way to customers and then all the way to our people. Can you talk to us about the idea behind that for just a moment? Yeah, organizations that are improving overall, if you assume a certain level of fixed cost, they're going to grow through both customer retention and build build outs of customers and new customers. And so um, we've got to maintain our eye on on that ball, so to speak. But to get there, we've got to really think about what the most efficient path is to get to high levels of customer retention and customer growth yeah, and what we call customer engagement, which makes customers keep coming back and, and continue to do business and, and even more over time because they see value. And it really, the, the, the most direct path there is employee engagement and employee engagement is all the all the discretionary effort that people put into place that really impacts customers. And Scott, unfortunately, right now we're seeing, after seeing a decade of growth and engagement, we've seen a decline. We've particularly seen more separation between employee-employer psychologically. And that's not good for all the things we want in terms of discretionary effort. In fact, employees are now much less likely to say that they that their organization delivers on the promise to their customers and and that they feel a great deal of responsibility to for the quality and service customers receive that's a problem because that then affects discretionary effort which in, impacts customers and so that that's a huge risk right now but let me kind of take it a step further so yeah. employee engagement's really important we got to get expectations right we got to uh, people've got to feel connected to their employer they got to know the mission or purpose of the organization and feel their job contributes to that. And having ongoing conversations between managers and employees is is really critical to making that happen. So if you step back from employee engagement, what drives that? Well, it's it's really getting the getting people into the right roles, fit to role, strengths to role, so that pe- people can use their strengths in their current role. And we all vary in terms of our strengths. We've had about thirty million people go through our tool called Clifton Strengths. Now we just yeah, you just 30 hit million. thirty million, right? Yesterday, yeah. Wow, that was yesterday. Wow, yeah, very cool. Yeah, so a lot of people that exposure to their strengths, but until they have a conversation with somebody about those strengths, it, it's sometimes difficult to think about how they how they apply it every day. And in particular, knowing your strengths can impact how each of us impacts our own engagement and the engagement of our team members, and how our manager leverages our strengths most effectively so that we can be engaged and, and have high performance and and so that we can set the right goals so that we have the right kind of conversations over time and high accountability in terms of the work that we're doing every day. So strengths to role is really important in terms of building efficiency into a workplace. And we really think that building a strengths-based culture is the bottom line here in terms of what organizations need to try to achieve because it creates some stickiness between the employee and their work and the employee and the employer and how they're best uh, leveraged in a new hybrid environment. And then finally, the, the one area that we found 
explains the most and it's kind of should be the starting point really is the manager and managers explain 70% of the variance in team engagement and managers are in the best position to leverage not only their own strengths, but the strengths of the people that, that they lead and to, to achieve high engagement and high customer value eventually. And so that manager piece is central. So if you think about just hiring someone into the right job, if they don't have a manager that supports them effectively and has the right conversations with them, they're, even if they're in, let's say they're a perfect fit for their job, they're going to be frustrated because they don't have the kind of support that they need. And they, they don't have someone who's, in, who's developing them and intentionally recognizing them when they do good work and, and, and really caring about them and giving them chances to grow and develop. And so people that are in the right job, but don't have a great manager are going to be more likely to leave and, and take their, their talents somewhere else. So getting that first kind of piece of the path in place is really important. So it kind of starts there with the manager builds into strengths to role, then employee engagement, and then the customer. And, and that's, that's kind of how human nature affects customers, which then affect the, 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 the business ultimately earnings per share, as you mentioned. But the, the good news is it's all, it's all, even though the problems we're having right now, it's all changeable. And I think, I think organizations could reach the highest level they've ever achieved if we do things right. Agreed. Completely agreed. Okay. There's so much I want to ask you about that, but I want to start with how do you all at Gallup define strengths? Because it, what I've discovered in working with this over the last 15, I guess it's been 20 years now, is that you ask one person what they mean when they say strengths, and you get a completely mm-hmm. different definition compared to the next person. If we look at like Martin Seligman's definition versus the next versus the next. So tell me a little bit about how you define strengths for the sake of our conversation. Yeah, the first word I'm going to give you is is a really important one, innate or innate capacity for excellence. And why it's so important is you see a lot of different models out there about people, whether they're called competencies, which I would argue competencies are changeable, right? So you, you use what's innate to affect the competencies. But when you mix those together and you expect people to change on all of it, it can be really frustrating because if you're asking me to change who I am from an innate perspective, it's very, very difficult, particularly when we become adults. So we measure the aspects of human nature that are more likely our tendencies that we'll tend to rely on and default on more times than not. Anybody who's had multiple kids will know right away that these, these kids come out different from a personality standpoint than, you know, unless they're identical twins, I guess, and even they can be somewhat different, but yeah. So for just a moment, I'm curious, since you, you mentioned the whole seeing, seeing it in children thing, what, what have you mm-hmm. learned about where strengths really start to show up? Well, we have a child development center here. And so we have, both of my boys went through it and they're, they're both in their 20s now. But they have a process where the teachers do what, what's called strength spotting. So they, they start identifying and, and, and telling parents about the strengths they're seeing in the in the kids at a very young age you know i've got a granddaughter over there now that they they and i've seen studies that show that when when a baby turns toward noise and action they're going to be more likely to be an extrovert and i'm sure that isn't perfect but the teachers over there say that she has to be involved in every conversation she's only five months old hmm. so she's already turning her head to be involved in in just babbling you know <laughs> that the yeah. babies have so Early on, I mean, it's, you don't have perfect indications early on, but you got there's, there's tendencies and you don't want to lock someone in too much into a particular style, but you can see it emerge. 
at a young age and everybody goes through adolescence and it becomes a, a more solidified. I think it's a combination of what we're innately given through our genetic code, but then also the experiences we have mm-hmm. and how, how those experiences affect what we're, what we're given at birth and how, you know, those genes fire over time and, and how they interact with our environment. And that starts to stabilize later on closer to adulthood. And, you know, we do test retest studies and, you know, it's hard to get the measurement of strengths perfect. And it's even more difficult to measure it when kids are younger, even though you can notice it, it's hard to measure it in the same way that we do with Clifton strengths. But I, yeah. I think we can start, we can start to see indications very early on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me pull you back to the strengths, fitting strengths to roll here for just a moment. I think that especially, especially everyone listening to this podcast, we've got a lot of fans of strengths. So I think everybody understands the idea behind that, but I think it's far more difficult to do that in, in reality. So I'm curious, what have you found helps with that fit to roll? Well, I think we've got to start with the job responsibilities, and I don't think we need to get too specific about the job. If the job responsibilities are broad, we can allow the person to fit who they are into that, and we can actually look at those job responsibilities and think about how we do it based on who we are individually. Once someone is hired, there's a variety of ways to get the same jobs done you know, and how we partner with other people to get those jobs done. So then it starts with, what are my tendencies? What are the tendencies of the people around me? In some cases, we'll learn that they have some of the same themes that that I have, and, and that gives us an opportunity to bond more quickly. And we found that on teams, teams with some similarities bond a little bit more quickly, but then we'll also learn about some differences. It'll put some language around why somebody does what they do in a positive sense, instead of us looking across the table and wondering why they can't be more like me. But it, it, it helps us explain why people are different and what kind of value they might bring to the team that we might not have realized before. The way I think about strengths is it shortens the distance between people. And we're right now in an environment where there is more distance. We've got more, more hybrid work than we've ever had before. Mm-hmm. And we can't replicate that all with, with video. All that happens in human nature at, at work and the innovation that happens and the, the problem solving that happens sometimes in person very quickly and the development that happens sometimes beyond expectation in person, but we can shorten that distance somewhat with the right language. Don Clifton invented the Clifton strengths tool with, with one major purpose and it's to increase the effectiveness of conversations that people have with one another. I don't know that uh, I knew that. Interesting. That 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 was was the original intent. That was his primary aim was to build more productive conversations between people. And that's, of course, with the aim of getting some things done, right, together. Yeah. But yeah, if we, if we can reduce the distance between people and speed up the, what, what's called in, in my field, it's called interpersonal congruence. So if you can build congruence between people more quickly, then, then you've got a big win. And that's what strengths has the potential to do for people. I can, I can build a team more quickly. We did one study where we found that, so we looked at the composition of strengths on various teams and their engagement and performance levels. And we found that the, the composition of the team was of strengths wasn't as important because most teams tend to vary. I mean, that's part of the grand design, I guess. We bring a bunch of people together and we see variants. Same thing with families. There's probably variants for a reason, 
probably allowed people way back, however far you think we've existed to get things done together more effectively because they've got different abilities. But we found that the thing that mattered the most is people just knowing one another's strengths. So just awareness is big and then having the right kind of conversations continuously is really important. But of course, the conversations need to be aimed at something, right? They need to be aimed at, at goals and priorities and something that we're all accountable for from a performance standpoint. There's nothing better than getting getting things done with other people. It is a ton of fun. Can. I enjoy yeah. it immensely. So I want to ask you about that because I read that piece that was that was also in Culture Shock about the team's awareness of their strengths was a better predictor, if I recall how you said it, than the composition, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And what I'm curious about, was there any indications that might explain why that was? I've, I've observed that on many different teams as well, but I have not necessarily been able to personally explain other than just many theories. Any, any idea or any indications from the data as to why that might be? We didn't. In that particular state, we didn't test any further than that. There's other other things that we've done that would lead us to believe that when you become aware of somebody else's strengths in comparison to your own, you're going to build better partnerships. And in some cases, and I mentioned this a little bit ago, when when teams did have some similar strengths, they did have higher engagement as well. And maybe that's just because they they understood each other more quickly with those similarities. But we also found that where teams were really loaded in thought process and they didn't have a lot of executing themes in their profile that they had trouble getting things done. Hmm. So there's some evidence about imbalance in there, but I think if you're aware and there's some balance, then it just it just builds greater efficiency and it gives you more, I guess, degrees of freedom on your team to to get more done. You can you can you can fill in for one another more effectively. That's that's the theory we built around it anyway. What have been your most counterintuitive findings from? Not necessarily not necessarily just the data for this book, but in general, what have been your most counterintuitive findings as it relates to strengths? I well, the, the one we just mentioned, I think a lot of p- people probably would have guessed that the composition of the team's strengths would have mattered a lot more than it did. Yeah. So that's 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 why we've emphasized that piece a lot. I guess the sheer level of energy that people bring with them on a day when we measured, we had a chance to measure energy in the moment. So we had people carrying around some devices where we asked them how they're feeling in the moment. We also measured their physiology through cortisol levels and those kinds of things. And we found that people reported much higher levels of energy when they had a chance to do what they do best during the moments of the day, not just as a summary of the day, but during the actual moments. So the actual connection between strengths and how our bodies are responding in the moment is pretty big. I think we can all sit sit back and if we start observing our day, we can see and feel that occurring. But it's sometimes our remembering self doesn't capture all that. So we go through life. If we're not using our strengths, we might just go through our days and our weeks and not recognize or register how that affects our our thoughts and feelings throughout all that time that we spend. So some of those momentary type studies have been kind of informative to me in, in terms of how how much strengths matters in terms of our our physiology and then how that might affect our long-term health down the road as that builds up. Another thing that was counterintuitive to, I think, to me and a lot of people in this most recent work was how people went about deciding where they work, whether they are deciding to be in the office or not. 
And only 13% of people said they decided with their team. I saw that. I read that. It was That was fascinating to me. Pretty shocking how low it was. And that was the one most highly related to engagement. And you can see how strengths fit into that. If I talk with my team, and we understand each other's strengths. We're going to have a better criteria to, to know how much time we should be together. And I don't think enough people are pressing themselves on that, on really building some predictability into when they spend some in-person time together. Because the, we, can't, we can't just think about what well, we can, but we shouldn't just think <laughs> about what's good for us. Because really, when we're together in person, that's a commitment to our t- our team members. And you might have team members that have a high woo or might have some really strong relationship themes. And maybe maybe you like your focus time. That's me, by the way, is, is the focus time. Me I don't too. have high woo, but I've got high focus. And so I really value the condensed time to, to, to get absorbed in something. But I also have to recognize that I've got other people on the team that need that in-person time. And it's a commitment to them. Totally agreed. And just for context for our our listeners, so I I was leafing through the book really quickly here to find that part because you talked about the 13% and that was in relation to who determines your hybrid work schedule. Is that right? Right. That's right. Yeah. And 37% said it's entirely up to them and 26% said their employer or leadership decides 24% their manager supervisor but only 13% and so explain for us here the the reason that that is so not just counterintuitive but the 13% is the most effective so can you kind of unpack that for for us here for a moment yeah when we looked at the engagement of of individuals who respond in each of those four ways you listed yeah engagement was highest for people who said they decided with their team when they'd be together. So it really is a commitment to your team. Certainly organizations, I think, need to need to set some guidelines or set some mainly guidelines so that it's predictable. If I come to work on a Tuesday, which I'm in the office right now, I can see my coworkers and I can interact with them. They're here. If I come here and they're not, they can get a little depressing. Mm-hmm. Or you or you just start wondering, maybe it isn't depressing. You just start wondering why did I commute 40 minutes into the office? So there's that that there's that <laughs> well, <laughs> there's that thing i might have listened to some good talk radio or something but i could have gotten a lot of other things done so it also builds in a when you make it happen and build some predictability into your schedule and people other people know when to expect you you have spontaneous things that happen i i was just a few weeks ago we we solved a problem in 10 minutes that nobody might have even scheduled a zoom call to try to figure out. It might just kept getting pushed off, right? So we, we got together in person and it was a really quick decision. But it's an example of what can happen in person that wouldn't and there there's there's a there's development that happens. Well if some interns coming in this in a few weeks here and them being with people who've been around a while helps a lot just in terms of their own development and interaction and feeling close to the culture. And all that. I'm probably going off on a tangent here, Scott, but the 13% had the highest levels of engagement. But what's counterintuitive to me is not just that finding, but also that when you look at the press now, you hear most people are either saying, leaders are saying, we trust you, do what's best for you, or get your butts back in the office. Mm-hmm. There's not anything kind There's of in nothing the middle. There's nothing in between. That, I, I, I think it, by the way, there is a segment of yeah. people who want to be in the office all the time. 
And even among remote ready jobs, like 10% or so of people, mm-hmm. they, they want they want that. Maybe it's because of their life situation, maybe their their resources at home, maybe the quiet that they get from the office. So so there's there's that. But 90% of people want some variation of work at home and and in the office or just or just working at, at home. But I should also say hybrid is the best potential approach going forward, but it also presents itself some challenges. Mm-hmm. If we just stick with the policy of hybrid and do nothing else, it's probably going to fail. That's how important management is right now. You're reaching the best of all worlds if you have a hybrid working arrangement in remote-ready jobs, so people do have some choice. But to make that work, you've got to have good management that builds in, as I said earlier, some predictability. But also, what I'd say is that the most important thing to take out of this particular conversation is every manager or team leader needs to have at least one meaningful conversation with each person they manage at least once a week. And if it's not regular, then you got to backtrack. If it's not, there's not a cadence, you've got to backtrack. You've probably got to have longer conversations than 15 to 30 minutes, which can actually happen if you're building on that previous conversation. So that'd be, that'd be one takeaway is that if we're going to make this hybrid work, work, we've, we've got to, reskill managers so that they are having at least one meaningful conversation per week. And, and strengths is a real key to making that work. Tell me what you mean when you say meaningful conversation. Great question. <laughs> because we do have to break that down. Yeah, absolutely. To, to really help people do it right. And it's not just the robotic having a conversation. When we, we actually asked people about their last manager conversation, and if it was a meaningful only 16% of people said it was extremely meaningful. Wow. Of the of those 80% were engaged. And if you think look the baseline globally is around 2 in 10 people are engaged and in the US about 3 in 10. So 80% just that one thing. Okay, so what goes into it? One, recognition for good work. That implies the, the manager knows something about your work and can recognize you in the right way, an authentic way that's appropriate for you. Only 10% of people are asked how they like to be recognized low-hanging fruit, but hardly anybody d- does it right now. So recognition was important. Collaboration with your team. We talked about that, having conversations about how people collaborate best with their team members. Mm-hmm. And uh, manager usually knows something about the other team members if they're doing their job right, and they can help that collaboration work more effectively in, in and still have autonomy. And, and managers, by the way, are in the only position to know each person is individual lives and their idiosyncrasies en- enough to be able to to have these kinds of conversations really in an authentic way. That's why the role is so important. Third, your goals and priorities. If you have a conversation every week, you don't have to backtrack and and you can build on top or adjust priorities based on the needs of the business. So having a regular kind of touch base on that is important. The time of the conversation I mentioned earlier is 15 to 30 minutes if you do it every week. If you don't, then it's it's probably got to be longer and you're probably going to be behind on a few things that, that, that happened that you have to backtrack for. It it kind of explains also why having only one annual review conversation a year just doesn't work anymore. And and it 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 never worked though. It actually never never worked. worked. (laughs) It actually never worked. (laughs) You're right. I think we Um, just pretended it worked for a very long time. (laughs) You're you're absolutely right. I stand corrected. It never worked. And then the next thing was strengths. You've got to have strengths as a part of the conversation. Actually, we, we actually asked people about whether weaknesses was a part of the conversation. And when people said it was about their weaknesses, they had lower levels of engagement. And that's probably because because that was the main focus. So I don't want to imply that 
just because strengths is in there and weaknesses isn't that that managers aren't having critical discussions with people, but they they have an environment where they've built trust and they can have candid conversations with people and critical reviews. And but the foundation of the discussion is based on the person's strengths and what what they do best and how they can build on those strengths to get mm. the job done effectively. I love that. That's frantically taking notes, Jim. Frantically. So to wrap us up, let's just reference the book and how would you, how would you describe the book? I got to, I got to tell you my description of the book earlier, but how would you describe the book? So the book, by the way, is culture shock an unstoppable force is changing how we work and live Gallup solution to the biggest leadership issue of our time. Yeah, we, we really wrote it for um, our clients, their associates, thought leaders and, and organizational leaders with the goal to provide them the best our best deep dive into the science about how we can make this new workplace not only work, but also lead us to higher levels of productivity and achievement than we've ever had before. And I think we can. I think from everything we've studied here, the, the individuals have learned a lot about how they can work more efficiently, but we've also got to have the right leadership so that we don't forget about how to build a culture that leverages our human nature as well, where we have in-person time where we can. And so, so I, I would say that it's it's written for for leaders who really want to make a difference with the science that we've been able to generate over the last few years. Well, I really appreciate that science. And I know you said at the beginning that one of the ways that you feel recognized is by people coming up to you and, and saying, hey, that, that study that you did or that research that you were involved with really made a difference. And we have, we've, my organization happened to your career, we've been around for the last 10 years. And we are utilizing pieces of that literally every day with people all over the world. So I, I appreciate that immensely. And keep doing it. Keep, keep fighting the good fight, Jim. Thanks, Scott. Really appreciate it. Hey, if you've been thinking about making a change for a while now, and you don't really know how to best take the first step or get started, here's what I would suggest. Just open your email app on your phone right now. And I'm going to give you my personal email address, scott at happentoyourcareer.com. Just email me and put conversation in the subject line. Tell me a little bit about your situation, and I'll connect you with the right person on our team where we can figure out the very best way that we can help you. Scott at happentoyourcareer.com. Drop me an email. Here's a sneak peek into what we have coming up in store for you next week. For quite a few years, I had this craving to get out there and and do something on my own, but didn't quite have a lot of the details or thought maybe I was mistaking that for having more freedom. And my last role had so much freedom, I only had to check in with my supervisor once a month with a little email. And I was like, that's not... So I don't think this is about the freedom because I have all the autonomy and freedom in the world and it's the work itself. Something that's become very popular and very trendy is opening your own business and going into business for yourself. You see it everywhere. However, it turns out it's, it's not actually for everyone. It's something a lot of people throw into the mix of considerations when they're unhappy with their jobs, but often it turns out that these people are confusing things like wanting more autonomy or flexibility and think that the only way to get to that level of autonomy and flexibility is to become their own boss. Without, without going into too much detail here, let me just say that 
it's not always the best way to gain autonomy, flexibility, or freedom for the majority of people. That said, there are certain people in certain situations where starting your own company is absolutely the right next step for your career. But how do you know? How do you know if starting your own business is right for you? All that and plenty more next week right here on Happen to Your Career. Make sure that you don't miss it. And if you haven't already, click subscribe on your podcast player so that you can download this podcast in your sleep and you get it automatically. Even the bonus episodes every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Until next week, adios. I'm out. Adios.